Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Ryan invited me out to dinner, and we had some drinks, and we got to talking, and he was telling me the story of Ratchet and the world and what some of the characters would be like. And, and we were just kind of rolling with it. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he says, well, would you like to have the job? And I went, yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah. Hello, 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 and welcome to Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's Editor-in-Chief, Patrick Gomez, and I'm joined today by our senior writer, Katie Reif. Listeners may recognize Katie's soothing tones from her duties hosting the AV Club's Film Club podcast and that lovely laugh. Uh, Thanks for joining us for this episode, Katie. Hi. I never heard my voice described as soothing before, but I like that. That's nice. I'm going to go with that. (laughs) I mean, I love it. You and you and Dowd both, uh, A.A. Dowd, who who hosts Film Club with Katie. Anytime I anytime I'm listening to your guys's podcast, I'm just like, "Mm, I could like curl up under a blanket. (laughs) And this is lovely. So no, oh, glad glad to have you, you here. Oh of my course. god, that's so fun. <laughs> um, uh, so later, uh, I'll be speaking with Desperate Housewives, Teen Wolf, Ratchet, and uh, the Batman actor Charlie Carver uh, about his new Netflix film, Boys in the Band. But first, Katie and I are going to have a little discussion about something that I know is months away at this point, and we've even got the Golden Globes in between now and then. But I, I wanted to look forward to the Oscars, which now has actually been pushed all the way to April. So we're looking forward to spring, but this was a big announcement that happened a couple weeks ago. And Katie, I'd love to get your take on the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences new guidelines for Best Picture consideration at the Oscars. And and before we start, I, I want to give everyone a real quick summary of what's been proposed, or, or not even proposed, announced. Um, so starting in 2024, all films that want to be considered for the top prize will need to meet four of these following two criteria. One is diversity and representation in the cast and themes and or themes of the film. Two is diversity in the creative team and or crew. So that ranges from everything from director, cinematographer, um, the head of makeup or costuming, all, all the way down to PAs and, and uh, you know, the, for lack of a better word, grunts running around on set. Three is the opportunity for paid apprenticeships and internships uh, for people of diverse backgrounds. Um, so basically asking that you're helping train the next generation of creators that are uh, come from a diverse group or four um, diversity and representation in the marketing, publicity, and distribution team. So this basically looks at the, the companies that are helping put the movie out. Um, it gets a lot more nuanced than that, but that's kind of the overview. And uh, I, with that, Katie, what were your first thoughts when this was announced and you first started really reading about what these what these gui- guidelines were? Well, what's interesting about these guidelines, something that I haven't seen discussed very much talking about it, is the first thing I thought of was, didn't I write a newswire about this about five years ago? <laughs> and it turns out that I had, but it was about... Um, 
the BFI and the BAFTAs. So the British Academy established rules that are very similar to these. Um, you know, like it's not word for word the same policy, but it is the same idea where you have, you know, these uh, categories and a film has to meet a certain number of the categories. And they don't just tie it to best picture in the UK. They also tie it to funding. So a lot of British films are funded by their national lottery. And if you want to get that funding, you have to qualify for two of these four categories in England now. And so we do actually have a case study of what these rules will look like if you look towards British films of the past. Um, I think it came into effect maybe four years ago. And the answer is, you know, when these rules were announced in the U.S., you had a few, uh, I mean, you can go ahead and say it more right-wing leaning celebrities being like, this is going to ruin everything. And the fact of the matter is in the U.K., it hasn't really changed all that much. And there were also a few, um, because the thing is, is that these categories are fairly broad and you only have to fit two of them. And as a white woman, white women count, and there's a lot of us out there. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, so that actually means that most films, you know, you see a lot of white women who work as producers, editors, that sort of thing. And that does count towards these requirements. Like, uh, you know, you look at a case study, there was an article in Vox that came out right after these new rules were announced. And it was looking at Oscar films from the past couple years. And they found that every single one of them qualified under these new rules. And, you know, and the first one that comes to mind is what about The Irishman, a film by a white guy starring all white guys. And The Irishman does count because uh, you have Thelma Shoemaker, who's the editor of the film, a uh, woman, obviously. And then the DP of the film is from Mexico. And so that film, you know, ticks those boxes. So basically the thing is, is that these rules aren't going to necessarily, you're not going to see films that are big, you know, hits who are not qualified for Oscars. Basically what it is doing is it is forcing producers to think about it on the front end, is all it really does. Is a, most films already cover two of the four categories. All it's really doing is making sure that when a film is being put together, that this is in the front of the producer's minds. They're actually not that strict of guidelines. Yeah, I I, I agree. And and you were very kind not to name people, but there were people like uh, Christy Alley um, who were very <laughs> very vocal, you know, saying that yeah, this was not the case. <laughs> yeah, it, it, like it's just she, they, they there was a lot of pushback saying that this was going to stifle creativity, that this was you know trying to over police and and all this kind of stuff. But I I agree with what you said entirely in terms of. What's interesting is that any big company is, is I think, going to also automatically, uh, hopefully, as long as they have diverse hiring practices, meet that fourth category of publicity and marketing and all of that, because you would hope that they are that they have a diverse office. And so, you know, they're automatically this is this is, I think, going to impact smaller companies and maybe wouldn't automatically meet that criteria. But you even look at uh, something like Argo. I was I was kind of looking at that in consideration and. Um, the Washington Post actually had a had an article breaking down some of the movies and and you know that uh, the character of Tony Mendez is partially of Mexican ancestry and even though he's played by Ben Affleck, there, that could be argued that that character was meant to be a person of color 
Um, and therefore, you right, know, so exactly. there, there's also like a lot of like these weird loopholes that could work. And, and you know, obviously, uh, you know, we have a president who loves to to use those loopholes for certain things. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm sure we're going to see we're going to see some films that uh, that didn't maybe take it into consideration as much as they should have trying to find these kind of little loopholes in there. But I agree yeah. uh, with you as well. Um, so this is a, a horrible podcast, Katie, because we're just agreeing on everything. Um, <laughs> but uh but I, I agree as well that it, that it's going to make people really think about it at the front end. And to me, that's what's important. And the most important one for me out of any of these is the the third criteria of the paid apprenticeships and opportunities for people of diverse yes. backgrounds. Because that is where we're going to see the lasting change happen here is this next generation of creators coming up and looking like like America, to be, to be frank. I mean, you know it makes sense that a lot of these things become kind of a family business. A lot of the, you know, obviously you can go to film school, but there's just some trades when you're working behind the scenes that getting on hand experience on a film set is important. And that's how you kind of become part of a guild and become, you know, known by other people in the industry and, and, you know, for them to consciously be thinking about, okay, how can I diversify this group of people that I'm bringing on to train? Uh, I think that's going to be really, really important. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you mentioned the guilds, like in the Directors Guild and the Cinematographers Guild are the two that really have mostly white male memberships. And so I think those two guilds are the ones that could most see the the change, you know, could most use the sort of like sea change shift over time. Um, my really... My main thought about that is that I hope that it doesn't become a tokenism thing where you hire on, you know, your diverse hire as an apprentice and then they can't get work after that. You know, they're just kind of used to meet the criteria. And then it's like, okay, well, you served your purpose. See you later. Um, But I suppose you just have to (laughs) have a little bit of faith that it's not an entirely cynical move. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I look not to not to turn this into a political podcast, but I look at, you know, the diversity requirements and affirmative action that exist in other workplaces. And Mm -hmm. it's it's a little bit like chicken or egg. It's like, you know, is it a good thing that we're that we're, you know, these are guidelines, but that we're forcing people to uh, to diversify in a way that's not organic. And and as a you know, as a as a person of color myself, Mm-hmm. I have to say, I, I I guess I don't really care how you let me in the door as long as you let me in the door and I'll prove myself That's from fair. there. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I wish we didn't have a situation in which it was necessary to require people to let a diverse group of people through the door. But that's unfortunately, for better or worse, where we are. And I don't even think a lot of times it's intentional. You know, we're having those important conversations about race and gender relations right now. And, and I, think, I, I think a lot of it's just... It's it's because it's the way it's been, so nobody thinks about it any differently. So, again, these are guidelines. And and the other thing to keep in mind that I didn't mention up at the top is that this starts in 2024, but they right. will be asking people to kind of report in the next two years of submissions. Uh, yeah. So what they've said in interviews now is that it's not for them to change the guidelines, but it's really for them to workshop how 
because it's self-reported. So that's the other thing too. It's like, it's, it's workshopping how people are going to self-report, answer any questions. And if they see any glaring issues, they are, they can look at changing the guidelines, but the goal of having these kind of soft start of two years of submission is more for them to kind of level set and be like, okay, how many movies is this affecting? And, and so hopefully like you say, you know, if like you're saying that it's not going to affect a ton of movies and make a lot of change that maybe they'll even push in the other direction and be like, look, this isn't creating the change that we thought it would. Um, And again, I mean, this also is, is a bit of a correction from the Oscars. So white situation. I mean, they, they, they tried to diversify in other ways and it just doesn't seem to be working. Um, So I'm, I'm excited that they're willing to try different things. I actually feel like the better corrective for Oscar So White specifically is that they expanded their membership and they uh, really diversified the voting block of the Academy. And I think you have seen a little bit of movement there in the past, uh, I'd say, two years, the effects of that. I think in terms of what films get nominated for Oscars, I think diversifying the membership of the Academy is the more concrete movement there. But uh, yeah, like you were saying, Patrick, basically when films start gearing up again, once it's safe to start filming again, that's when producers are going to need to start thinking about this. Yes. And and I hope that we see some lasting change. Uh, and I hope, you know, obviously we, we've seen the Academy come out with things like the most popular movie category and then draw that back. So they're also not afraid to try something and if it doesn't work, uh, make changes. Yeah. So I just, you know, for being as, as, uh, as much as we say that the Academy is old and, and stodgy, uh, they, they certainly are willing to be flexible. So I'm excited to see how this, how this turns out and hopefully it's effective yeah. in creating lasting change. Yeah, it's a pretty gentle policy, actually, when you really look at it, particularly, like I said, when you look at the example of the BFI next to it, it's pretty gentle guidelines. And I do think that it's a positive change, like you said, because now it forces people to think about it. It's a deliberate thing rather than an afterthought. Yes. Well, I appreciate you being here to help me kind of process all this, Katie. Of course, Katie will return later in Push the Envelope uh, to talk about many other things as the podcast continues. But I really appreciate you taking the time today, Katie. Uh, If you are interested in reading Katie's thoughts about film or anything else, you, of course, can find that on avclub.com. Katie, uh, where can they also find you online? Oh, wow. I mean, you can find me on Twitter at Rife with Katie, but like, uh, <laughs> that's that's non, non-official. Mostly, I would say just check me out on the AV Club. I have a, a battled relationship with Twitter sometimes. I'm not convinced it's good for your mental health to be on there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that is entirely, entirely fair. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, check me out on there. And I am also looking forward to when the Oscar race heats up because it's going to be an interesting one this year. Yes, well, we certainly will have you and Dowd uh, both here, either together at different times or both as we get close to the Oscars. Thank you so much, Katie, for for joining us. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you again very soon. Thank you for asking me, Patrick. Of course. Talk to you on Slack later. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, While Katie has to go, I'm still going to be continuing because we've next up got Charlie Carver, who I mentioned earlier is the star of Desperate Housewives, Teen Wolf, and The Batman, which we may or may not be able to talk about in this interview, uh, Ratchet on Netflix, and also the new film Boys in the Band, which just hit Netflix this week. Uh, So coming up right after this music is the lovely Charlie Carver.
As I mentioned, please welcome to Push the Envelope, Charlie Carver. Charlie, thank you so much for being able to join us for this. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Super yeah. excited. Um, well, congratulations. You've got like 10,000 things going on. Um, some of them I know we can't officially uh, acknowledge maybe, but that we at least <laughs> at the AV Club have reported. So I know you've got uh, some stuff filming that we're e- excited to see soon, uh, hopefully sooner than later with everything going on. Um, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, I guess I guess before we dive into Poison the Band and Ratchet and everything else, uh, you know, COVID has, has definitely impacted a lot of production and all this kind of stuff. What has your experience been like during this, this period of having to like shut down and then back open and all this uh, stop and start? Yeah. Um, gosh, I'm trying to even remember so much has happened this year that didn't go as expected that it's like, wait, so what was the, what was the story we were telling? Um, I was in London working on the Batman when I'd actually just sort of finished a sequence and was debating on whether or not to fly home to Los Angeles or spend some time in Europe while they were on location somewhere. And then, I mean, at that point, it was pretty clear what was happening. Um, There was certainly really sad news coming out of Italy and Spain. And so I decided to fly back home to LA. And I think I got home two or three days before the shutdown began in California. And yeah, um, I don't know if it's too much personal information, but I'm I'm kind of a hypochondriac. So the first month and a half, not only was I very vigilant, but I also was kind of freaking out. I'll say staying abreast of the news. But I, I, I this has been my worst fear since I was eight years old. I, I saw the rock and outbreak kind of maybe back to back. I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of TV or movies, but somehow the two got into my head. My dad also being a historian of medicine who we would ask about poisons and epidemics and plagues and all of that, that the worst possible thing that could happen in the world and my worst fear ever was a respiratory pandemic. So um, I don't want to minimize at all what's going on by talking about this, but I, I just, in January was like, oh, okay, I think this is, I think this is coming. The, the information coming out of Wuhan is scary and i'm going to get some masks and some sanitizer and food and the whole shebang and oh i like i basically had like a bunker started so don't feel Uh, yeah i did too i did too um (laughs) so then by the time we got into kind of the late spring and early summer i i i just gave over to it i am lucky and then i have some outdoor space and i was with my brother and we were in our little pod and hung out with a new dog and kind of took it easy. It was the strangely also the only time in the past 12 years that I haven't really worried about the phone ringing for work, Um, which meant (sighs) getting to just take a fresh look at everything that had happened in the past prior years and, and sort of where I wanted to gear my head for whatever was going to be next. Um, So it was in that way, kind of a nice quarantine to be able to get reacquainted, to know that everybody in my family was being as vigilant as possible and uh, to just sort of wait for any news about when production might resume. And I'm now currently in London, production's back. We had a a little bit of a well-publicized incident on set, but they're taking such good care of us. Uh, such good care of and such attention to safety. And uh, yeah, it's actually making me quite hopeful that not only will the entertainment industry 
not only is it resilient, but it will adapt accordingly and adapt very, very well. Obviously, you on a on a set, you could leave a project and come back months later to like film pickups or or that kind of stuff. But you were mentioning that you you kind of had to stop like mid scene almost kind of thing. Like how much of a, of a, for lack of a better word, mind fuck is it to be like, oh, where we were, I was just in this world for so much and then walk away. Oh, oh yeah. No, I, I don't think, I don't think it is a, uh, I don't think it, it, it it's going to mess at all with the storytelling at hand. I think that uh, now, especially now that things are back up, it's just, everybody feels very, very secure in the environment and the work environment. And that's what matters most because then you can do your job. Oh yeah, I mean, I did. I, I, I'm glad that it didn't affect storytelling, but more so just on a personal level. I was just like, it, it, <laughs> like if I had to walk away from something mid-story I was writing, I'd feel like there was just this sense of like incompletion. But I guess that's that's a lot of the sense that you guys get from jumping from project to back to other projects and such. So maybe it's just yeah. a, a, a different it's like mindset. A, it's a- it's like a cut with a coda, you know? <laughs> yes. Well, something that you did get to go back to after uh, after some time away is Boys in the Band, uh, which just mm-hmm. hit Netflix this week, and uh, people have been loving it, so congratulations. Uh, congratulations there. Uh, which started, uh, well, started in 1968 uh, with the original stage production, then was turned into a film two years later, and you all repeated that process 50 years later. You were first part of the Broadway production that went up a couple of years ago, and now, uh, as I mentioned, had the Netflix film. Uh, this is a this is a fantastic cast of uh, LGBT uh, of gay men actors. I was going to give the whole letters, but but I, it's tough. I feel for you. I know it's like it's yeah, like, uh, you know, we're a part of the LGBT community, but this is a very it's like a gay cis male project for sure. Yes, totally. Yeah. Um, and it's got uh, Jim Parsons, Zachary Quinto, Andrew Randall's, Robin De Jesus. You've got so many fantastic names in this project, and you are one of them. I guess start at the beginning with this one. What, what was it like to get involved with the stage production? first uh, and then we'll talk about the movie yeah i mean maybe i'll start at the very beginning uh the audition memo came in i think i was i was on my way to amsterdam or something like literally out the door bags packed and it came in and i went oh shit it's friday they need it do they need it some some deadline that was like this is going to be impossible i'm going to be i'm going to have just flown to Europe and be jet lagged and had some some work stuff to do over there. Like there was no way I was going to get it done over the weekend. I got the audition memo in the afternoon, read through the play. I was sort of already familiar with it, but read through it to get acquainted as best as I could and just kind of jumped into the cowboy and was like, I, I, I have a feeling, you know, this, this, this project looms large and sort of the gay canon. And I was like, okay, the cowboy, like, gosh, isn't that, isn't that the character who's usually like this towering hunk like that's what you that's what he does and i don't feel that way right now certainly not with my bags packed and, and trying to lock up um i'm just gonna bring a key phrase to it which was like for me that the last line one of the exit lines the, the the exit line that cowboy has is sort of about showing affection to his clients he's a hustler and uh yeah so i just kind of looked at the words as best as i could through the lens of affection, went, okay, here we go. Throw my hat in the ring. Didn't expect to hear anything. Um, and then as soon as I landed, got word of, if you're available, they'd like to to put you in New York uh, for the table read. Or actually, <laughs> I'm not even telling the truth on that. I told them I lived in New York, but I was living in Los Angeles. And so I was like, oh yeah, I'm in the city. Flew back from Amsterdam, got myself a hotel room, did the table read, kind of even fudged the application, if you will. 
And then there we were. Um, and it was just from the first rehearsal to the end of that Broadway run, magical. Like we started rehearsals in Los Angeles to accommodate um, Jim Jim Parsons' schedule. And that was what, nice. What could he possibly have been doing? <laughs> yeah, what was he doing? Talk about juggling things. I mean, he was filming, he was every night after rehearsal going and filming The Big Bang Theory. Wow. Yeah. And I think on the last day of The Big Bang Theory filming, like the, the rap day, was the day before our first preview in New York where he flew in and just jumped on stage. Man is a beast and a legend um, <laughs> and a darling deer. Anyway, uh, and we had a blast. We were in LA. I was sort of, you know, comfortable in where I was and 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 I think we all were and got to have this dreamy kind of Los Angeles rehearsal period before going to New York City doing how, how many performances? I, I, I tried to add it up the other day and I, I don't remember the exact figure, but eight shows a week. And just the best time doing it. I do think it made a massive difference that it was a cast of all out gay men in that from the first rehearsal on. I wouldn't say that I feel uncomfortable being professionally out in the business, but there's certainly the sense of accommodation in a professional setting of like, okay, you know, I'm gonna, I don't know, not watch my language, but I can't code switch, if you will, into sort of free flow and, and and fun with who I'm around until, until I get to know them a little better. And we didn't have that same sense of, what would you call it? I guess a sense of accommodation for one another, not to say we weren't, you know, respectful, but there was just an immediate sense of everybody showed up. We were, uh, some of us had worked together before. We were all kind of able to mutually identify the experience we'd all shared in, 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 coming out and working and all that stuff. And so it was just fun. There was a shorthand established immediately. And uh, yeah, that, it flew by. And there were whispers when we were in New York that a movie might happen, but there were whispers about other things. It, it, it was not a guarantee. Um, cut to six, then nine months later, talk the movie started coming together. We showed up to New York at the Tony Awards, which was super exciting. Mark Crowley got to win his Tony Award from a work 50 years prior, which he so deserved. And it was the joy of the entire experience getting him to, to see him get that accolade. Um, and then we filmed the movie. So it's 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 been the past, the better part of the past three years of my life. I spent three actual birthdays with these boys. Um if I'm rambling, you can stop me and ask questions. No, I could just go on about it. I could no, you're not rambling at all. I, for, what I will say for for listeners that aren't familiar with the project, it it basically is a slice of life film that takes place on a Saturday evening in which a group of friends are gathering together for a birthday party for a friend of theirs. And as famously was said on the movie poster in 1970, your character Charlie is is the gift um, mm. from one of the from one of the friends. Um, this is a character who is is written to be kind of a punching bag for some of the you know he is younger than the other characters he is at least at surface level um taken as somebody that is not as intellectually advanced as them or or sophisticated as them which is fair <laughs> which is fair um, I mean, that's pretty fair right uh, let's not dance around the subject <laughs> yeah. yes but you but uh, you in the last 30 seconds maybe have have uh, said more longer sentences than he says with all of his <laughs> put together what goes in like you mentioned kind of like 
holding on to that final line of his, which you've hinted at, I think, just the right amount. You don't want to either build it up or, yeah. or ruin it for anyone. But what was what was key to kind of unlocking a character who maybe isn't the brightest light and isn't the most verbose, and yet still you 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 are an entirely equal entity in this in this ensemble film. Oh well, thank you. Um, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> I'll take it. Um, I think it's sort of you know it's what the rehearsal period is for. It's a it's a crucible in which to try things and and to have the work that you're doing at home to kind of filter in. Um, Joe Mantello, our fantastic director, was very keen to talk about and share research, and that was very informative for me. You know, on a, on a Technically, I understand that Cowboy, you know, he's the only character without a name. He is the punching bag. He either delivers the jokes or is the butt of them. And so he sort of functions as comedic relief, if you will, or the punching bag. So there's a technical aspect to it where you understand your character's sort of function in the in the story and, and technically like what they have to do and how to give that life. But then I don't know, to make this person, to give them the humanity they deserve, I, I I wanted to do as much as I could to kind of inform how to do that in a way that felt authentic to me. And a lot of that meant going into the history of the period. And, you know, not only the late 1960s, but the 1950s, 1940s, reading about the social history, um, the experience that a lot of men had back then of, you know, going to a bar and getting put in a paddy wagon for consorting with homosexuals or dancing too close. Um, the real sense of threat that existed in the atmosphere. And, you know, this is in New York City and, and many other the major cities in America. It was much worse in rural America and, and life kind of went. Homosexual activity was just had to be even more covert. Um, but there was a great book I read called City of Night, which was a somewhat fictionalized, but basically a autobiography of a hustler and his experiences in the 1950s and 60s in, in the major cities in the U.S. And what I found was this incredible sense of community that wasn't only among the hustlers, but was amongst the hustlers and the queer folk and, and those who were brave enough to gather and who were out, basically. And that it... it it prefigured, well, it, pre it prefigured where we are now. Um, what am I trying to say here? I guess I'm trying to say that often when we look back at history, we desexualize it, I think, because, you know, not only were people not afforded the same sort of like legal freedom, but because of the legal freedom they didn't have, because of the sexual mores that we impose on the period, we sort of neuter um, <laughs> what it must have been like to be human back then. And, 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 throwing oneself into the history, throwing myself into the history, go, oh no, God, this is so immediate. I mean, this reminds me of my after hours nights out in Los Angeles or New York or Berlin, if we're being real. Um, <laughs> you know, there's this sort of continuum and, and something that is, uh, I don't know, uh, qualitatively lasting. Is that the word I'm looking for? Eternal about gay slash queer experience. Um, and so when I got that kind of into my bones, I just realized that what Cowboy, as I'd created him, wanted more than anything was community. You know, I'd probably come 
outside of New York City from a small town with a set of experiences that would lead to considering sex work, knows he can make a dollar off of his looks, but is really there to be a part of something and have community too. And so then being in the room with these men became not only a job, but a celebration of a new friend's birthday. And uh, yeah, I just had fun with that, with the kind of appreciation of and affection for everyone in the room, even though I'm kind of the stranger in the bunch. Yeah. Well, that, and I think that's one of the important things. I, I think, you know, watching this, this film, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fun and laughter and dancing and, you know, it starts off in a big party mood. And then uh, it's certainly as, as parties can, when you get longtime friends together and they're drinking <laughs> and, and such uh, things can get heated and, and things can escalate in ways that maybe isn't the most friendly. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I think, you know, these, these men, particularly in 1968, when, when it, the piece is set, they're family because they, one, they have to be, but they want to be, you know, they, they've found mm-hmm. each other and they're, they're each other's tribe. So even if they are screaming and yelling at each other, they know they're going to call each other tomorrow. They know they're yeah. going to, uh, to still be in each other's lives or at least seemingly so. Uh, you hopefully did not have any sort of contentious relationship, but this also did enter you into a family. The the film is and the stage production was directed by Joe Mantello, who's incredible. Uh, but it was produced by Ryan Murphy, and mm-hmm. uh, as we are well aware, Ryan Murphy uh, likes to kind of have his troop of actors that he's working with, um, and at least seemingly from the outside, that now includes you, as you were part of the cast of Ratchet, the Sarah Paulson's new series that came to Netflix as as well. Uh, was or were those related um or was it a completely separate entrance into the murphy verse yeah i i have to believe they were related <laughs> i mean i love ryan ryan makes me belly laugh probably harder than anyone other than i'll give my twin brother credit sometimes he and i can crack each other up pretty good but but ryan is such a uh, warm delightful amazing person and Getting to know him in New York during the run at events. Um, I mean, he was there throughout the rehearsal process, just, you know, being the best audience member ever and willing to have a good time with us during breaks and all that jazz. Um, After the run, Andrew Rannells and I actually did a house swap. Um, Andrew had to film a TV show in LA and had just moved into a place in Chelsea. And I had nothing to do. I was like, okay, maybe I'll see what happens. And it'd be fun to be in New York and you know, not leave immediately after this wonderful summer. So we called it the holiday. He took my little bungalow in LA. I took his great place in Chelsea. And I was just kicking it. And uh, we really, like the whole group, Ryan, Joe, Ned Martell, who helped adapt the screenplay, like we just were all so close. And Ryan invited me out to dinner and we had some drinks and we got to talking and he was telling me the story of Ratchet and the world and what some of the characters would be like. And then we got talking about this character, Huck, who, you know, is a World War II veteran and has these scars on his face. And, and, and we were just kind of rolling with it. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he says, well, would you like to have the job? And I went, Yeah. <laughs> are you kidding me? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say no. And I, I'm definitely thrilled to say yes. So yes, when, what do I do? When do we start? And uh, that is pretty great. That has not happened in my career uh, where I have somebody who believes in me enough to just offer me a role without the audition, um, which, wow. I mean, thank you, Ronnie Murphy. 
does that send you does that send you into uh, into uh, production more confident or the pressure higher because of that <laughs> that's it's an interesting question right both both because there is i don't know there's something fun about the audition well there's something rewarding about the audition process because you know you're being hired for the job based on the work you did in the room. It can be incredibly frustrating too because you know you can be so prepared and either in the room, usually not on a self-tape, but in the room you go like, ah, that wasn't quite it. And if if we just worked together on this for a moment, I, I know I've got what it takes. Um, on the other hand, this incident where somebody offers you the job, you go, oh, fuck, I, I better... I got to live up to this. I don't want to put pressure on myself because that's going to be counterproductive, but I, uh, I got to live up to this. And then the rest of the cast announcements started coming in. It was like, okay, I knew it was Sarah, which was amazing, but Cynthia Nixon, Sharon Stone, John John Briones, Finn. Like, I didn't know all of that when, when this was getting started and went, oh, I've really, I've really got to prepare and show up and at least pretend to know what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. But again, research, my new best friend. <laughs> Uh, well, and this is another, this is another, like, I mean, obviously Sarah is the title character and it follows her world, but uh, there really is, as most Ryan Murphy productions have opportunities for each of you to really shine. And I know yeah. your character is one that people have, have really latched on to, I think because of his relationship with Sarah Paulson's character. Tell us a little bit about what it was like doing research and diving into him as a veteran and you've got this prosthetics and makeup and such going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you know that you're going to have prosthetic makeup on your face from the get-go, there is really the opportunity to, I guess, work from the outside in, in that you want to figure out the story of this because of, sorry, I'm gesturing to my face, um, because it's going to inform everything else. So that meant throwing myself into World War II um, and more specifically, the sort of heavy trauma, um, the history of, of heavy, heavy trauma in, in, in World War II and the rehabilitation process. And uh, yeah, it, uh, it opened up stuff for me, which I, I guess I don't have to get into. But um, it's funny, I, I do believe that a job kind of enters your life to teach you something or to help you work through something, not, not a job as therapy, but as an opportunity to kind of explore stuff. And I didn't know, I didn't know not only how different the veterans experience was up until something like the Vietnam War, but uh, also the, how different the attitudes were towards war in World War I and World War II, specifically among like young men who volunteered or who were drafted. Um, and it was just this pretty tragic history to jump into and to begin to understand how unexpected violence really just lives in the body and not, not in necessarily a wound or, or a scar, but, you know, the psychological trauma just stays in the body and how that affects the whole system, for lack of a better word. And uh, yeah, I got to sit with that for a while and how kind of came out of it. I remember the first time not knowing how the scenes were going to go, but the first time having the actual makeup finally put on my face and looking in the mirror and going, oh, I, I recognize something there. And it's not the wound, but it just, it just, you put it on and suddenly the, the 
what you've been building, what you've been preparing kind of comes complete. Anyway, so there was a scene that's in the third episode when Sarah Paulson and I, who have become kind of allies and trying to save these women in the hospital. Again, I, I, I don't know how much I'm supposed to spoil here, but... I think, it's safe to, I think it's safe to say there's crazy shit happening in a hospital. Uh, crazy shit happening. Know, people would know that it's related to Cuckoo's Nest and, and okay. similar yeah. stuff there. Well, we're trying to liberate these patients. And there was a line written that uh, I, it had an exclamation point. It was, it was something I was supposed to say. And I just found it was one of those things where we're having this makeup and, and, and having had that work. Like I, I couldn't say it other than as a whisper. I mean, it really wouldn't come out. And uh, that's so, thank you for indulging me. <laughs> I guess I'm just telling this, telling you the story of how fun it is to be surprised and to surprise yourself as an actor. And so to be surprised with the gift of beautiful special effects makeup and the gift of time and trust to do a role where you do get to transform and, and you do get to kind of dive in before you're filming. So often in TV, it's like, ah, you booked it, you show up on set and you're kind of in somewhat familiar territory. And because this was something that Ryan offered, like it, it was a challenge for me. It was, it was certainly new for me. And uh, to really feel the breadth of that opportunity, the breadth of the opportunity was uh, awesome. Yeah. Well, I, it shows in the work, and and I I, I really congratulate you on on having it's it's a good Netflix month for you, uh, or this this past yeah. month was uh, <laughs> September was a was a good I love Netflix. You Netflix. <laughs> I love Netflix so much. Well, I know we can't. Uh, I know you can't divulge anything about Batman, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna even try to attempt to get you to do that. But what I will ask before I let you go is. Were you a big Batman fan before this came into your life? And I know you and your brother, they're working together. Uh, so that's limited the number of existing characters, at least people could think that you were. And what's it, so what has it been like seeing everyone try to, try to guess what your involvement is and Roland's in the project, all that point. So all of the, all of the speculative stuff, I won't, get, I won't force you into any sort of actual, actual divulging of information. Uh, yeah, I was a Batman fan, actually. I, it's not like I grew up being able to go to a comic book store. I, I sort of grew up in the country, but we would go and we would buy the volumes of comics in, in book form and just plow through them. And I've always had a superhero soft spot. So to get to be a part of this world is really, really fun. Really, really fun. Um, and I think people are going to love it. Um, I can't tell you anything about the characters, but it is fun to see people speculate. God, I'm really not. I'm not no, that was anything. that was that, no, but that was. <laughs> I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to bow down to the masterfulness in which you, you gave. You you didn't give a nothing answer, and yet you still somehow uh, didn't say anything. And that's that's an art um, that I'm, get, I'm sure you will continue I'm, I'm to getting practice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm definitely getting some practice. Well, you are welcome to come back and practice anytime on Push the Envelope. We thank you so much for joining us here. Um, for those who are already not following you socially, where can people find you online? Oh gosh, uh, I have a Instagram and a Twitter at Charlie Carver, and I think the Twitter is like there's there might be an underscore in there somewhere, and then I uh, I deleted Facebook because well everyone should watch the Social Dilemma. I, I didn't say that Netflix. Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. Uh, 
fair. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thank you so much for joining us on Push the Envelope. And thank all of you for listening to Push the Envelope. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, or even if you didn't, please hit subscribe. Uh, remember to rate it and comment. Let us know what you're thinking. Charlie, again, thank you so much. Uh, and we will have you back anytime to push the envelope. Uh, but for now, all of you have a great, great week. And we'll be back next week. Actually, uh, we will no longer be releasing on Fridays. We'll be releasing on Thursdays. My producer would uh, have chastised me if I got away without saying that. So please expect new episodes starting every Thursday. Uh, until then, have a great week and find us on avclub.com. Thank you, Patrick. Bye, everyone. Ooh. Thanks for having me. This episode of Push the Envelope was brought to you by the AV Club. It was made possible by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.